Good morning, everyone. My name's Philip, and I'll be bringing you the second Bible reading, which is taken from Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 17. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all the demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave the town as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared to, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see them. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place here. He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everybody sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Amen. And may God add his word to his blessings to his word. Thank you. Thank you, Philip. Well, good morning again. Uh, my name's John. We will be studying this passage. We will, in fact, be considering Luke chapters 9 and 10 over term 1 and a bit after Easter as well. You might be wondering why we're starting at chapter 9 in, in the Gospel of Luke. And it's because we've been studying the Gospel of Luke for about three years already. So you can follow up by listening to the past sermons, chapters 1 to 8 on our website. So that's all there. But this term we'll be looking at chapters 9 and 10. And it'll be nice uh, for you in your own personal devotion. Just read ahead, read, read Luke again, get a feel of the context, what's happening, what's the movement, and what's happening next. Uh, but let's pray, and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, as we consider your word to us, what we lack, we pray that you'll give us. Where we lack understanding, please fill us. Where we must change in our convictions, we pray that you will change us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the last few weeks, we have been thinking about God's vision for us. And last week, we were thinking about serving. Jesus came for what purpose? 
not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we've been thinking about, well, how are we meant to be responding to Jesus, our King, our Saviour? What does it look like for us to pray? And of course, what we do desire aligns with what God desires. We want to see God glorified as the love and truth of his people, of his church, of you, overflow from here to the world. And we want to see that for generations to come. And in a sense, what we did over the last two weeks is, is helpful, it's a helpful backdrop as we look at Luke chapter 9 today. But as we consider this passage, we'll start by thinking about what is God's agenda? What is it that God desires? What is it that God wants in the world? And it's worth us thinking, is God's agenda also my agenda? Is my agenda in life aligned with God's? It's worth thinking about, isn't it? In fact, have a think about the last prayer you prayed. What was the flavor of your prayer? Was it, Lord, please give me what I want, what I desire? Please give me, please bless me. Or was the flavor of our last prayer? Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're thinking about, isn't it? What is our agenda in life? Does it, in fact, align with God's agenda? Do my desires align with God's desire? My longings, my yearnings, do they align with God? Is it all about God's agenda or mine? You see, this week I was reminded of the story, the, the, the famous story of Joshua. Remember him? The leader of God's people after Moses. There was this part of the story where after Joshua crossed the Jordan River, he was approaching the town of Jericho and he was ready to take it. You remember that story? He approached the town, he looked up, and then what happened? Well, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in hand. And so as Joshua was focusing on Jericho, there was a man, a soldier, in fact, a commander with his full military garb, sword in hand, which means he's ready for battle. And what did Joshua say to this commander, to this general? Remember that? Now, of course, Joshua did not know that. He was speaking, in fact, to the commander of the army of the Lord. He did not know that. But what did Joshua say? He said, Are you for us or for our enemies? Which side are you on? Are you my side or their side? And how did the commander of the army of the Lord respond? No. Or in the Old English, nay. Modern, it's neither. But then this commander of the army of the Lord said, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. Now, what is that to tell us? It's not your agenda, Joshua. It's not whether I'm with you. It's whether you are with me, whether you are with what I'm doing as Lord, as commander of the Lord's army. And, of course, after that, Jericho fell into the hands of God. See, it's a powerful story that really captures how we are meant to live this life. And how we're to think of our life. Is God with me? Is he for me? Is he doing what I want? Is he, is he fulfilling my desires? Satisfying me? Or am I with God on his agenda? And so that's what we'll be reflecting on. And so when we consider this, who is it that caused the shots? And so when we look at this passage, we heard in the kids' talk, which was so wonderfully done. In fact, 
It really feels like we don't need to hear this sermon at all after hearing that. But it's not a very complicated story at all to understand. It's really quite straightforward. And so we'll work through this passage quite quickly. But where I want us to spend a bit more time is in fact to understand why this part of the story is in the Gospel of Luke. Why is it here? And what does it teach us about the agenda of God and how that must challenge our own agenda in life? And so firstly, we look at this story and we see firstly God's provision for mission. What did Jesus do? Well, he sends out the 12 apostles. Now, the word apostle just means the one who is sent. And so he sends out his apostles on a mission to extend his work so that they get to do exactly what Jesus has been doing up until this point. You see, up until this point, Jesus was healing the sick, he was casting out demons, and he was proclaiming the kingdom of God. And now Jesus turns to his 12 disciples and he says, you get to do that too. You get to join me in the work I have been doing. So go out. And so that's what we see. Look at verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority. Now that's important to, to note there. This power and authority came not from within them, from whatever they were able to do, but they came from Christ. Power and authority to drive out demons. Now that's also worth not forgetting. It's easy to forget, particularly in our modern Australian society. You know, they're talking about demons. Are we meant to believe this stuff? But there is a spiritual reality, a spiritual battle we're all engaged in. It is a spiritual battle that is raging still. And so to drive out demons, back to this verse, and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. The key to what Jesus sent his apostles out to do was to proclaim and to declare the kingdom of God. Now you hear that word, that phrase a fair bit in the Gospels, the kingdom of God, and so it's worth just pausing to reflect on it a bit. What does it mean? What is the kingdom of God? How will you answer that? You see, the kingdom of God is one of the major themes that you can trace throughout the Bible from the beginning to the very end. And you can summarize, and this is worth remembering or memorizing, you can summarize the kingdom of God as God's reign over God's people in God's place. So God's reign over God's people in God's place. And so in the Old Testament, that pattern was set up. That picture was painted. There was a glimpse of that, and there was an anticipation of that. And so in the Old Testament, you saw God's reign as he gave the laws and made the covenants over God's people. Who were they? The Israelites. In God's place. Where was that? Israel. And the peak of that glimpse of the kingdom of God was during the reign of King David and at least the first part of King Solomon. However, when you get to the end of the Old Testament, that kingdom of God seems to have all been gone. But then throughout the end of the Old Testament, you get these prophets, and they spoke about the coming kingdom of God that won't be merely physical. It won't be bound to one race or one geography. It will be an everlasting kingdom. See, in the Old Testament, it was preparing that. The pattern was set. It was damaged. It was broken. But they anticipated this everlasting kingdom, this kingdom that reverses all the curses of the fall. 
Death will be gone. Illness, sickness, gone. And there will be a king who will reign forever over his people who will love him forever in his place that will last forever. God's reign over God's kingdom in God's place. And so now we get to the New Testament and the anticipation for this kingdom of God. God is doing something. That's what's going to last. This world will be passing away. I want to make sure I belong to that kingdom. And so Jesus comes and what does he do? He proclaims it. It is at hand. And then he inaugurates it. He establishes it in his death and resurrection. In his ascension, the kingdom of God expands. Now it reaches even the Gentiles. And it will be finally consummated when he returns. And of course, that's talk about heaven and the glory of eternal life. And the only way Jesus was preaching, the only way to belong, to come into the kingdom of God, this world is passing away. There's another kingdom that has been established. The only way to get in is by faith. By faith, humble faith in Jesus Christ. And when you do, like us who believe today, you see, if we call ourselves a Christian, Jesus is my Savior who died for me. He is my King. I follow him. If that is what we say and profess, then we have escaped the kingdom of darkness and we've come into the kingdom of light. Do you realize that? Those of us who are Christians, we belong to the kingdom of light. We have moved from death to life, eternal life. It is ours already. We've moved from shame to glory, from slavery to freedom, from sin to now being forgiven. We live in this world, but we belong to the kingdom of God. And that's why the preaching of the apostles and Jesus, it was accompanied by healings. Casting out demons. Why? Why did that accompany the preaching of the kingdom of God? Because evil and sickness and illness and tears and death will have no place in the kingdom of God. And so hopefully that gives you a flavor of what it means when, it, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. It's, it's full. It's big. It's about what we now belong to and continue to anticipate in fullness. So that was the mission that the disciples were on, to proclaim that kingdom. But of course, as they were proclaiming at that point, it wasn't the full picture yet. They didn't see it all, but yet they were proclaiming, it is at hand. And what do they need for this mission? I mean, it's a huge mission. You're changing souls, you're changing lives, you bring them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom. How do you do that? What do you need? Well, what happened here? Well, just so that the apostles were absolutely clear, none of this work depended on them at all. What did Jesus say? Bring nothing. Just like that little kid's talk before, wasn't it? Bring nothing at all. Even that sandwich I wouldn't eat. But anyway, don't bring it. Because why? God will provide. And so we see verse 3. Take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. It's a bit like when you book the uh, cheap Jetstar flights. You, you only pay for check-in baggage. You only get carry-on, seven kilos. But, but this is saying, you don't even get carry-on. Just whatever you're wearing and go. And if this is God's agenda, if that is what God is on about, then God will provide all that is needed to achieve his agenda. 
God will provide. Jesus sent them on a mission, and God will provide. You don't need to bring anything. Do you know the story of Hudson Taylor, that missionary to China, the one who really was so instrumental in bringing Christianity to China and inland China? In 1865, after returning from China to the UK, after six years in China, when he was back in the UK, he saw smiling faces, but what tugged at his heart, at his heart was the desperate need of the faces of the Chinese left back in China. And so what he did in 1865 was he opened a bank account, he deposited only 10 pounds, and that was what it took initially to establish the mission organization, China Inland Mission. But he said, it's not simply 10 pounds, but 10, ha- 10 pounds plus all the promises of God. God will provide. And he went on to say, depend on it. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. He is too wise a God to frustrate his purposes for lack of funds. And he can just as easily supply them ahead of time as afterwards. Isn't that beautiful? God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. And that was exactly what the disciples had to learn. If this is God's agenda, you're on mission, then God will provide all you need. So you disciples, just go. Go, bring nothing with you except my power. But don't expect it to be easy as well. You will face rejection. Look at verses 4 and 5. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. I mean, that practice of shaking the dust off your sandals, it was what strict Jews would do after returning abroad or from Gentile territory back to Palestine. They would shake the dust because it was seen as a rejection of the Gentiles. Well, in a sense, Jesus is saying, those Israelites who reject you, well, treat them just like the Gentiles. Don't waste your time. It's time to move on. I mean, Jesus even said, do not cast your pearls before swine. Why waste treasure with pigs? And so, go and you'll have all you need, Jesus says to his disciples. Perform the miracles, cast out demons, proclaim the kingdom of God, and God will provide all you need. So provision for mission, but also provision for salvation. Not just the message, but the substance. And salvation only comes from God. And of course, that makes sense. It just makes sense, doesn't it? How can anyone save themselves? How can we work hard enough to think that God will be pleased for us and he'll open the gates of heaven and say, come in because you've been so good? How can anyone climb up to heaven, climb up to the standards of God? Of course not. Salvation can only come from God. And that's what the story of the feeding of the 5,000 is about. But to understand the story and to understand the significance of this miracle, it's in fact the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels apart from the resurrection. It's the only miracle in all four. It's that important. But to understand the significance of this miracle, we have to understand a little bit of the background, a bit of the context. And it's it's important for us to also understand a bit of 
why Herod made this cameo appearance. You know, what's that about? Why is he smack bang there right in the middle? You see, the backdrop of this miracle and the backdrop of what Jesus was going around doing was the failure of the shepherds of Israel. All the leaders of Israel have failed. The kings, the teachers of the Lord, the scribes, the Pharisees, they have failed. And Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, spoke about this several hundred years earlier. He spoke against the shepherds over Israel. And nothing has changed over all those centuries. And so in Ezekiel 34, he said, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? And so it was a prophecy against the shepherds. All you leaders, you are failures. Look at what you have done. Look at the mess amongst my people. And so we're meant to be thinking here about Herod. That's why he's smack bang there right in the middle. And then Ezekiel, he went on to say, You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You see, as leader, as shepherd over God's people, that's what you're meant to be doing. But they weren't. But what did Jesus do? He was doing exactly that. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the loss. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. Herod, what did he do? He killed one of the prophets, John the Baptist. And then we read on, Ezekiel 34, 11. For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. I will tend them in a good pasture and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. What did God promise? You shepherds, you leaders over my people, you've all failed. Who will fix it? I have to come. God has to come. And I'll shepherd my own people. And then he said, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. You see, we have to understand that background, that backdrop, that context to understand this miracle. And so here in this miracle, what was in fact taking place when the thousands upon thousands, were coming towards Jesus. You see, the disciples were sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God to the lost sheep of Israel. They're all strays, they're lost, they don't know what they are doing. And now they've been brought in. They've been gathered, the strays, the lost sheep, they've been gathered together. Where? Before whom? Before the true shepherd of Israel. And what did he do? Well, now look at verse 11. It's a beautiful picture. Remembering that backdrop of the failure of Israel's shepherds. What did Jesus do? Verse 11. He welcomed them. Thousands of people gathered together. Come. Open arms. Not like the Pharisees with fingers pointing. Open arms. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God. What's that? Remember? God's reign. Over God's people in God's place and heal those who needed healing. In fact, in Mark's gospel, we also read that Jesus had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. What do the sheep need? They need to hear the words of the shepherd 
They need to know about the kingdom of God. They need to know how they can come in. And so Jesus was the shepherd they longed for, the good shepherd. And so what did Jesus do when they all gathered, the thousands there? It was getting late. The, the disciples now suggested to Jesus, well, just dismiss them. Let them go to the towns and villages. Let them find their own food. Let them find their own lodgings. And what did Jesus say? Well, I found Jesus' response fascinating. Look at verse 13. He turned to his 12 and he said, you give them something to eat. Now, don't you find that so fascinating, so interesting? Why would Jesus say that? I mean, did Jesus not know that they didn't have thousands of bread around or a lot of money around? They, they were sent with nothing. Don't carry your wallet. They came back with nothing. So why did Jesus say that? Don't you find it fascinating? Well, perhaps after all that these 12 were able to achieve and to see as they went out, healing the sick, the lame walking, the demons cast out, proclaiming the kingdom of God, it perhaps was easy to, for them to think now, wow, look at us. We've scored. We've scored big time. Look at what we can do. And perhaps here it was a reminder to them of their utter helplessness in providing what the people of God really needed. Only God can. It was to remind them. And so Jesus got them all to sit down in groups of 50, and then we read our final verses. Taking the five loaves of bread and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up the 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. How many people were there? There? 5,000 men, not including women and children, so 10,000. Completely satisfied. More than full. The meal was so bountiful that there was so much left over. I mean, that's already telling us something about the God we have. He provides, He provides abundantly. He's not stingy, He's not stingy at all. And so Jesus did what Herod should have done. Jesus, in fact, did what only God could have done. And so what's the point of that miracle? It's easy to understand. But it wasn't merely so that they could all get a free meal. Well, of course not. Remember the backdrop. Jesus comes and he says, I'm the good shepherd. And just as God provided manna from heaven in the time of Moses, remember that story, God provided once again. But this time, it wasn't something that God provided from heaven, just bread, but someone from heaven. Not just something from heaven, but someone. Not just bread for you to eat and have your fill for one meal, but Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In John's Gospel, in this same story, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So what's God's agenda? Let me ask you. What is God's agenda today in our world? It is big. It is huge. It is about the salvation of souls. It is about eternal life. It is about the kingdom of God. It is about entering into the kingdom of God. 
It is about having your sins forgiven. It is to have your guilt removed, filth and dirt cleansed. It is about so that you might be counted amongst the flock of the good shepherd. So that just like Psalm 23, we can say, The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord, he's mine. I shall not be in want. You see how important this is for us to remember today? Because I know life is so busy. We're in February already. School has started, work started, and traffic and everything else. In all the busyness of studies and driving and dropping off kids and picking up kids and homework and bills and everything else. It is so easy to lose sight of what God's agenda really is. It is big. It is cosmic. It is eternal. It's the kingdom of God. And God will provide, and God does provide, all that is needed to get in. You've got one life. Make sure you get in. The disciples could not provide that. They couldn't buy. They did not have enough money to buy all the bread. The people came. They had nothing to offer. They were desperate. They were hungry. But God provided. You see, that miracle on that hill when Jesus provided was in fact looking forward to the greater miracle on another hill just outside Jerusalem when Jesus, the good shepherd, will lay down his life for his sheep. When Jesus, the bread of life, will give his life so that they can have life, those who come to him. God provides everything necessary for salvation. And so that's our passage. It's not very hard to understand, is it? Quite simple stories. But what do we learn about the agenda of God? You see, God's agenda is about advancing his kingdom, not ours. He's not to bend his will to ours so that, Lord, give me a a big kingdom here. And we may call our kingdom all sorts of things. My career, my car, my possessions, my home, my investments, my kingdom, Lord. No. God is on about his kingdom. Are we aligned with his or are we trying to make him align him with ours? This is very easy to forget, isn't it? God's agenda. Of course, we have all the responsibilities that God does entrust us in life and we need to be responsible. We do so faithfully, trusting in the Lord. But what will it really matter? And this is a question you've probably heard me ask before. What will it really matter in a thousand years with all the things that fill our minds and pull out our hearts? What will really matter in a thousand years? I find this such a helpful reminder for myself. Such a helpful. When I confront something, when I face something and it's not happy and it's not good, I just try to reflect on, will it really matter in a thousand years? And so let me pose a few questions to you. Will it matter if I missed out on Taylor Swift's tickets in a thousand years? Of course not, right? That's rhetorical, so... Does it matter if I only get to drive a Toyota in my life and never, you know, Ferrari or Porsche in a thousand years? Who cares? Does it really matter? I mean, at the moment, the big talking point is cost of living. Increased interest rates and making life difficult. And of course it's difficult. It's not unimportant. We need to be wise. But will it matter in a thousand years? Will we be talking about what the interest rates were? Does it matter if I face in life 
disappointments, setbacks, failures, even broken relationships, will it ultimately matter in a thousand years? Will it matter if I suffer in this life the ravages of this broken and fallen world? Cancers and diseases and sickness, and they're not easy, they're hard. We don't, we don't suppress it, it's excruciating. But will it matter in a thousand years? It'll be a distant memory. Does it matter? And I say this cautiously. Does it matter if I live this life never having married? Never being able to bear my own children? Not that there's no grief with that. Of course there is deep grief and pain and lament with all those things. But in a thousand years, basking in the glory of God, knowing full well God has never withheld anything good from me, Will it matter? Or does it matter if I, in this life, do not recognize my rebellion against God, my need for forgiveness, my desperate need for a saviour? Will that matter in a thousand years? Yes, that matters. That matters. Does it matter if I do not, in this life, enter into the kingdom of God by faith? Will that matter in a thousand years? Well, yes, that matters. Does it matter if my children believe our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ now? Will that matter in a thousand years? Yes. You see why it's so helpful for me to keep perspective in life? I mean, parenting is difficult. We have ups and downs and we fail at parenting in many ways but we're so crystal clear with our kids and we're often clear what matters most. I don't care what you do in life. What matters most is that Jesus is your Savior. So I want to see you there in a thousand years. That matters. Does it matter if my husband, my wife, my brothers, my sisters, my children, my parents, if they believe Jesus now? Yes, that matters. You see, God's agenda is big. Sometimes we're so caught up with just our world, our mind, our hearts. But God's agenda is the kingdom of God. And God has provided everything. A good shepherd who laid down his life. The bread of life who gave his life. And so if he is my Lord, he is my shepherd, I can say with the psalmist, with King David, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. My cup overflows and I dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's God's agenda. But how does it happen? How will anyone enter into the kingdom of God? Have you thought about who will be up for such a responsibility? And I think this is where it's very daunting. Because just as Jesus sent out the twelve, this mission has not ended. The mission that the twelve started has not ended. He sent them out. In the next chapter, he'll send out 72 and that mission continues. Jesus will continue to send and send and send. And Jesus is saying to his people, his disciples, I'm involving you now in what I'm doing. It's not whether are you with me or with my enemies. Jesus is saying, no, are you with me? And this is where we learn that Christ's sufficiency will always meet our insufficiency. 
He will always provide what is needed to achieve what he has given us. God will always provide for his own agenda. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Or remember John Payton last week. My God and Father is too wise and too loving to err in anything that he does or permits. I mean, have you thought about just how many years ago, one and a half years ago, when we considered as a church, let's together pray together, turn to God, let's see if we can, as you know, ordinary people, let's see if we can purchase the property next door. Remember that? Remember how tense, how many prayers? I wonder how many of us doubted, surely this can't happen. No way. We're a Presbyterian church. We're so slow moving. I wonder whether some of us thought, for sure we'll get it. No way, of course we'll get it. We had a month, if you remember back then, a month to raise the pledges. One month. And how many did you, the people of God, raise, pledged? I mean, it's on the back of our newsletter, isn't it? It's almost 1.2 million. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Now, of course, this doesn't necessarily mean we do exactly what the disciples did. Go and take nothing. But at the very least, it means if I feel inadequate, especially if I feel inadequate and insufficient and weak, I can be used by the Lord. I can be used by the Lord to bring his word to bear on the lives of those around me so that they can come into the kingdom too. Christ's sufficiency will always meet our insufficiency. And so those of us who are parents, I mean, we wonder, don't we? We, we read the Bible with our kids. We do devotion. We teach them Jesus is your saviour who loves you. We hope that they will grip their hearts. But we do so in our weakness. But we trust God. He will do the work. Those of us who are single parents, we tirelessly, weakly, Bring our sons, our daughters to Kitsha so that they might grow up knowing the Lord. We do so weakly, knowing our inadequacy, but we trust the Lord. He will provide. He will do it. It's a family devotions that gets harder and harder. And sometimes it's just a drain, but we do it. And we trust God, you do your work. It's the friend who, who gives the colleague a Christian book, have a read of this. And we trust it to the Lord. I mean, that happened amongst one of us, and that person became a Christian. It's a youth leader learning to preach for the very first time. It's the neighbor you speak to inviting, come along to our carol service. It's the many in our church who meet one-to-one. Will you read the Bible with me? I mean, can that feeble effort be of any significance at all? Can it really make an eternal difference to the souls of people? Yes and yes, because the power lies with God. Christ's sufficiency always meets our insufficiency. You see, these 12 uneducated fishermen, no Bible college, no theological degree, no training in preaching, they have changed the face of this earth. The gospel has come to us because of them. They've gone out, and ultimately, God provides. And so finally... What's your agenda in life? Do I bend to God's or do I expect him to bend to mine? Are we like 
Joshua, God, are you with me or against me? And God says, no. Are you with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you do provide everything that we could possibly need in your Son, Jesus Christ. We have salvation. We enter into the kingdom of God that has started and will last into all eternity. So help us, Lord, to live our lives, not seeking your will to align with ours, but your will be done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.